it's something we all do every day of our lives. Breathing. And yet most of us are doing it wrong. An astounding fact, given the relationship between the breath and decision-making, particularly in high-pressure situations. In this episode, Dr. Belisa Vranich, a renowned clinical psychologist, public speaker, and author, will tell us some surprising information about breathing and walk us through the simple, revolutionary program she developed to improve mental and physical health through breath work. As the founder of The Breathing Class, Dr. Belisa has taught and lectured nationwide, and so we are honored to have her here today on the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Dr. Belisa, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. You exude energy and life. I think that has a lot to do with the work that you do. Talk about your schedule right now. (laughs) Schedule, as if there's a schedule. I'm just catapulting myself into the abyss of work, which I love so much. And I think probably other people have that problem. Like if you absolutely love your job and you feel like it's your passion and you just every day is like, amazing and you can't wait to open your email that's, you know, because <laughs> you don't know it's going to be there. Um, and just amazing things and interesting things are happening. There's no schedule right now. And, and it's something I'm going to work on for 2019. And I don't encourage anyone else to work this I was way. just going to say, like, do as I say, not as I do exactly. type of thing here. <laughs> but I don't know when, you know, vocational bliss is something that's so elusive. It's so seldom that you find a job where you don't want to do anything else. I guess it's not a job then. But uh uh, and and for the first you know good chunk of my life, um, I w- had jobs which I liked and that were mm-hmm. interesting. But this is completely different because I'm living and I'm breathing it. No pun intended. So let's take a step back and go to the early part of your research into breathing. What motivated you to go into this type of field? Completely personal. So um, I had a panic attack rollerblading on the West Side Highway. I took my rollerblades off. I walked home in my socks. And this was around the same time that I was having some jaw pain and I went in to see the dentist and I was told I was a grinder, which I didn't love hearing. I mean, I there was a, there was a much more technical word, um, but I was given a mouth guard, and I and I spent a lot of time in the dentist chair, a lot of money, like a ridiculous amount of money, getting uh, just posts and crowns, and things would re-break because when I do things, I tend to do them really wholeheartedly. So I was grinding like I was doing anything else. It's just full force, all the pressure I could on my teeth. So it was a combination of having this panic attack, having this tooth break and realize, um, then it ended up being two and three, um, that I didn't have my stress under control. And I'm really driven and very focused. And the idea that I didn't have my stress under control was uh, kind of freaked me out a little bit because I would tell you that I absolutely had my stress under control. But that's what usually happens is that you think you have it under control and part of your body comes out and slaps you in the head and says, you do not have this under control. And inside your body, it's very unhappy. So I had to address that. So I went to a yoga class um, and the first one was terrible. Uh, It was just too woo-woo for me. I think it was hot. I think there was carpeting. I just remember thinking like, this is not what I expected. 
And I looked for a yoga class for about two years because I knew I had to do something other than what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And finally, I found one. And it still had some woo-woo in it. We did some chanting and the music got a little groovy sometimes. But uh, it was very much into anatomy. And I loved the breathing that we did in yoga. Um, and I started looking more into breathing. Um, so that was a very beginning. Did you have like a visceral reaction to the breathing when you were practicing yoga? Um, well, no, not so much as that. I actually just kind of said, oh, I really like this. Like this. I wish we were doing more of this. So I remember sitting there saying, gosh, I, would we, I wish we were doing more counts and holds and different things that we're doing with breathing. I you know, wish the class were longer when it came to that. Mm-hmm. So that was my reaction. It wasn't, I hadn't gotten to the point then that I thought, oh, I want to teach this. For a minute, I thought I wanted to be a yoga instructor as well because I'm always looking back to going back to school. Um, it's not that I'm that driven. It's just that I'm that immature. I really want to go back to school <laughs> by any means necessary to learn anything at all. So um, what happened then is I had a friend who said, you know, I'm taking these breathing classes. And like usually happens, sometimes you get a message about something you should do and you ignore it. And then you sort of get it in a second way. And I, I've heard it take several times. You know, you plant a seed and you sort of get – this information several ways and finally you take it. And I guess that's what happens in advertising as well is that that's how they get you is that you see it one place, you hear the word, you remember the jingle. So I had a friend say I took this breathing class out in you know New Mexico with a guy named David Elliott. And I was like, ooh, that sounds so woo-woo. It's a group of people. I'm not in, big into group activities of that sort. I don't – I'm not big hand-holder um, where are you from? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm from Wisconsin. You'd think I'd be like a little bit more earthy. I am from Wisconsin. But uh, I think being in New York makes you a little bit of a germaphobe. I'm just not into holding hands and eye gazing. I mean, other stuff, yeah, don't get me wrong. But um, anyway, so long story short is I end up going to this class where as soon as I walk in, I put my hand out to uh, shake David Elliott's hand. And he looks at me and he chuckles and he gives me a hug. And at that point, I was not a hugger. Um, I don't know someone. I'm not hugging you. I'm shaking your hand. It's quite polite and it's, you know, appropriate. So we got through the weekend. We actually did – we walked on uh, hot coals and fire and did all kinds of interesting things. Um, A lot of eye gazing and and things like that as well, which were kind of cool. But I loved the breathing and I loved David. Uh, David was super – down-to-earth guy and the meditation to give you an example of the music he used during breathing and meditation was country we were listening to zach brown so i was like this is pretty good it's not too you know wind sounds and chimes like listening to country music and he would say you know don't look to me for all the answers in with with a twang which i won't try to um imitate like i don't know everything like figure it out yourself so that was my first experience with learning a type of breathing So um, I brought it back to New York and realized that there was no way in hell that my folks in New York were going to be able to uh, take this sort of stuff if I positioned it in the same way, that um, I would have to do some translation and some sort of – I don't know if it's updating, but I'd have to change it to make it into a method that was more um, measurable Mm -hmm. for – sort of you're more like I am, like you're more uptight folks who want to say, 
I'm at this number and then I want to go to that number. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean uh, like numbers in a corporate way. I mean it like in a gym kind of way because I love the gym and I want to know how much I'm lifting and how much I want to get to. So I wanted it like that. Tell me a grade because then I can study and do better. And that's how I put together the breathing class. So what is the breathing class? <laughs> you know what? Obviously, I'm not in marketing because it really is just a breathing class. Mm-hmm. Well, I was fortunate yeah. enough to go, and I learned a lot about myself. And so I, I would like you to explain yeah. it so that other people can understand what the experience sure. is like. Well, I laugh because um, whenever I talk to anybody about the breathing class, they say, oh, you know, usually if they're in marketing, they say, you need a cuter name. You need like a um, a soul cycle Lululemon type name. And I go, go for it. I am not attached to my name at all. If you can find some cute name that somebody hasn't taken let me know. I would be happy to be like Lululemon if that wasn't taken or, or whatever it is that's really cutesy sounding um, and would make for a great T-shirt. Unfortunately, most cutesy names are taken and they conjure images of other things. Mm-hmm. And the fact is my class is a breathing class, which again, when I first started, you know, people would chuckle, oh, breathing, ha ha, I know how to do that, inhale, exhale, when the fact is that most of us are not doing it very well when you look at it from a mechanical standpoint. So the breathing class is a, an appointment or a class where you look at your breathing from a mechanical standpoint. You also add neurology. So you look to see how does my breathing affect my arousal or my nervous system. And then there's psychology because we are creatures that need stories. We need history. We need to be attached to our health in a way that brings us in and makes us committed to change. So you have to bring the psychology into the breathing class. And by bring the psychology, I mean, what's your story with your breathing? You know, what are the myths that you have that has now made you a breather that is uh, someone who's breathing in an inefficient way? And once you ask that question, people will answer. They'll say, oh, well, I thought I was supposed to be gripping my belly because that gives me stability. Or, you know, I've been wearing compression garments since I was 15 and I just – the idea of letting go of the middle part of my body, not necessarily just my belly but my sides and just relaxing my middle makes me feel really vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Or I was chubby as a kid or there's a million different reasons but you have to ask and you have to add that story, that psychological part. What I loved about the breathing class is that there was a lecture part and then a practical part so that you actually walked away with like – tangible takeaways and results. So what is it that you did first to measure inefficiencies? Oh, great question. So you have to remember that my my degree is in child psych, which means that I spent a lot of time doing psychometric testing. So IQ testing, personality testing. So I looked at um, breathing as how was I going to assess this? Because you don't see your lungs. You don't see air. Um, There has to be a way beyond spirometry to measure how you're using your diaphragm. So right now, if you say I have a problem with breathing, people will tell you either to go to yoga class, which is does not mean you will have a solution at all. I mean, you might be more conscious of how you're breathing or listen to your breath more, or you go to a pulmonologist or a respiratory uh, physio and they will do spirometry with you, which is um, you blow into this little machine and it lets you know about lung capacity and lung velocity. After you blow into the little machine, if it's okay, you just get told goodbye. 
So you never get told, here's what you're at, here's what you were last time, here's what you could be, and here are the exercises to do. So what I look to see is, are you using your diaphragm? Because to me, that's the most important thing. Not using your diaphragm means that you have um, ripples throughout your body of dysfunction that happen because this enormous muscle in the, in the middle of your body is not moving. So it's been done in the past, but I look to see what what's called excursion was in the body. Mm-hmm. So what I'm looking at is a measure of abdominothoracic respiratory flexibility. That's a huge word. Luckily, the acronym is ARF. So that's like <laughs> I'm all about acronyms and I love dogs, so it was absolutely perfect for me. So I'm looking at abdominothoracic, right, your, your belly, your sides, your middle, respiratory flexibility. So it's really much looking at how much do you widen? And how much do you narrow on your inhale and exhale? And where is the location of movement when you breathe? So at the end of the day, we're looking at location of movement and range of movement. So that's going to give you information on if you're breathing in a way, in a a dynamic way, the way you should be breathing. And that's going to give you a grade. There actually is a system where you get a grade. And I don't remember what yours was. Do you remember? It might have been an A. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to go with that. You're going to go with the A. I would not, you know, I know you and I would not be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if you ended up with an A for sure, yeah. for sure. But most people walk in um, and there's seldom I get an A. Most people, you know, just like anything else, they range from F minuses, you know, to lots of Ds, lots of Cs, a couple mm-hmm. Bs, and every once in a while I get an A because the fact is we're not really breathing in a horizontal way using our diaphragm. We're breathing up and down what's called, medically, it's called apically. So that's with your, your neck and your shoulders. But that's kind of my method in a, in a nutshell. So what are the consequences of improper breathing? Oof. Well, one of the things that happens is that the consequences are so far from the source that people don't recognize that the symptoms or the ailments that they're having is related to not using their diaphragm when they breathe. But what I want you to think about is that you have about 10 to 11 pounds of breathing muscles. Um, They are mostly in the middle of your body. If you're not using them optimally, several things happen. One is that your digestive system doesn't get the support that it needs. So peristalsis, which is sort of the the, uh, massaging that your intestines does to get food through your body, isn't being supported by the muscle on top, which also helps massage. So you have digestive issues. A lot of folks now are thinking, oh, uh, I have acid reflux, so that's a problem with my esophagus. I need to take prescriptions. I need to change my diet. And I agree on the diet. I agree that we have to chew more for sure. But if the muscle that's directly on top of your digestive system is not moving the way it should be, the way we were designed to have it move, you're going to have digestive problems. So other ones are Uh, back pain. So back pain to me is fascinating because one of the books that was formative for me in in my interest uh, was John Sarno's The Mind-Body Prescription. Mm -hmm. And he's a back surgeon. And he talks about the importance of breathing when it comes to back pain. So the folks I see either have upper, uh, upper back pain, so neck and shoulders, 
or they have lower back pain, so L4, L5. And if you think about it, if you're using your auxiliary muscles, which are your neck and shoulder muscles, to breathe, and you're using them as primary breathing muscles, well, you're probably going to have neck and shoulder pain. And the lower back also makes a lot of sense because your diaphragm, which is sort of like a frisbee, uh, frisbee-sized steak in the middle of your body, it attaches to your lower spine. So if you have lower back problems, yes, you're probably sitting too much. You're probably not stretching. You might have some disc degeneration, but the constant pain comes from not having the blood flow, the, the movement, the attention from the diaphragm as it connects to the spine in the back. So those are two I see all the time. The fortunate thing is you have figured out ways to help people change these inefficiencies in relatively quick time. Can you talk about some of the things? It's that the most gratifying job because I came from being a therapist where, you know, even though I wasn't a particularly patient therapist, my style was dynamic, which meant like you do homework, I do homework. We're just going to bulldoze through these problems and we need to get through them fast. I don't want you seeing me for years in a row. Um, not the best uh, you know, financial model for a therapist, but um, my style of getting through things and being very proactive. Um, so what happens is that when you first, you have to understand how the body works because we don't know how it works. We really have very little idea now. Thankfully, there's a lot of great CD. Um, 3D graphics that show you what the diaphragm looks like, but in general, you ask people what what the diaphragm looks like and. You know, they think of a plunger, which it doesn't look anything like a plunger. Or they think of this like – you see pictures of it and you're like this weird squid that has these like lines attached to it and sort of like a dome shaped. And you just don't know how it works. You sort of know it's there. You know it's important. But really you don't feel it. So you don't really give a lot of attention to it. It doesn't have a lot of nerve endings. Once you get the diaphragm moving – is um, and all the muscles that that help the inhale and the exhale, which are obliques and intercostals, things change immediately. And it's interesting and it's so gratifying as as a teacher is that folks all of a sudden will say, oh, you know, I feel better or I'm, I'm feeling more relaxed. And then they immediately think, oh, it must be temporary or it must be magic or it must be me. And it's none of those things. It's just that they're breathing the right way. So the the benefits you see are immediate and the more you practice, it gets more natural feeling and I have people feeling better right away uh, and I'm, I'm the first one to be surprised and, and be super happy about it because they come back and they say, my back pain's better and my digestion's better and things like I can think more clearly. I always right. thought that one was kind of interesting. Of I thought I was supposed to be in a fog. Mm-hmm. I had power lifter, um, uh, a power lifter come in to see me, Brandon Lilly, and he called the next day. He's like, I, I just thought this fog was normal. He's like, I can actually see more clearly. Is that normal? And he hadn't been breathing at all. I mean, given your weight and your style and your posture, the different types of breathing dysfunction I see um, are widespread. But with uh, power lifters, their exhale is so bad. He had so much residual air in his body that he couldn't take an inhale. He could lift a hell of a lot but wasn't breathing so well. (laughs) You just touched on something that I want to dive a little bit deeper into, which is the relationship between breathing and decision-making. Mm. 
God, what a great question. So when you go a little deeper like that, and thank you for going there, is that your breathing is your intuition. So when we talk about inner game, it's kind of interesting. Inner game and the mind-body connection, everybody nods, oh, yes, very important, uh, very important thing, very important thing. We're going to talk about this. But the fact is that your breathing is the mind-body connection. Your breathing is your intuition. So if you're not breathing or if you're not breathing well, both those things are off. Whenever you have a pro athlete and you see them in their their movement and their intention and everything is really graceful and it seems to be all connected in this incredible pro athlete kind of way, Mm -hmm. it's because they're using the breath for their movement and they're breathing in a way that that sort of supports everything that they're doing in getting that goal, getting that basket, you know, you know, getting that. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of wrestling, getting that pin, whatever it is that you're doing. So the rest of us mere mortals need to learn from them. Um, And again, most people who harness the breath that are pro athletes don't know how to explain it. You know, they just have, they just access flow. But what flow is, is that you're breathing in a way that synchronizes all your movements so that you're not working against yourself. And I know that's, that's you know, kind of a heady thing to be talking about, but that's where we're going. When we talk about right. peak performance and optimization is that you can't have a beautiful, perfect movement if you don't integrate the breath into it. Um, much has been made of the benefits of breath coaching for high-stress performers like you were just talking about, like firefighters, law enforcement, military. How will an improved, at least understanding of breathing, help these forces execute at the moment of truth for them? Um, I think you have to break it down a little bit. So if you have a, a um, tactical athlete, a uh, you know first responder is that you need the breath for several things is that you need it for endurance so you are probably going to be moving something running you're going to need it for your conditioning and most people think oh cardio well cardio is just your heart so can you work out your breathing muscle so that your endurance gets better absolutely so that's the first place the second place is strength and i and i separate strength from endurance because strength has to do with your stability the more stable you are, the more you're going to be able to lift and the more you're going to be able to lift safely. So again, your breath has to be in a part of your body that helps your stability and you have to be able to brace and breathe as well. Most people, when they brace, stop breathing. Um, For precision, if within what you do, you need precision, you better have a an inhale that gives you an exhale where you can feel the natural pause very, very clearly. And then finally, in recovery, in recovery and resilience, you have to integrate the breath. And it's not just about, you know, meditating every day for two hours, because Many of us don't have two hours to meditate. And there's a whole other chunk of us, and I include myself, that can't meditate, is Mm -hmm. that we live in a high-performance world or a high-stress world where our attention span is is the the lowest it's ever been in the history of mankind. Mm -hmm. Um, And silence is almost – is almost deafening and distracting um, as well as – (laughs) there's a – I'm going to 
go off on a tangent, but if you've seen the skit that Louis C.K. has about silence and he starts singing Bruce Springsteen to himself, you just have to go because it sort of summarizes everything I'm talking about in a nutshell. So okay. We don't have the time and when we are alone, uh, you know – Bruce Springsteen singing Jungle Land is like the only thing you can think of in the back of your head. But trust me on this one. With recovery, you need to be able to oxygenate your body, put yourself into a parasympathetic state, lower your cortisol so that you can either do another set or continue firefighting or be able to wake up the next day and go back to work and and still have a peak day, even though you had one yesterday as well. Your journey started because of stress. So how does diaphragmatic breathing help with stress? The way you breathe is the control system for your arousal. So if you are stressed out, you are always going to be breathing in a stressed out way. So you can be stressed out, but if you're breathing in a way diaphragmatically, is that your stress will be um, something – It'll be specific. It'll be a practical thing that you have to get through. But your body doesn't necessarily have to be in stressed out mode. So this is particularly relevant when I'm talking to um, uh, uh, first responders is that if you have to get something done and it's an emergency, your brain and your nervous system doesn't have to be an emergency. The situation already dictates that. So put yourself into a place in your nervous system with your breath that's alert but calm. So how do you do that? So most people will say, oh, it's what I say to myself. It's the positive self-talk that I have. Mm -hmm. It's the pacing of my breath, which it's not. It's the location and range of motion. So you can be in a very high-stress environment, but if your body is in a calm but alert one, you can have as much stress as you want to because you're in calm and you know you're still in calm and that way when you get home and you want to go to sleep you just turn the dial down a little bit and you can actually get to sleep but most of us are revving on 10 and we're breathing on 10 and you're just burning the system down you're burning you know the mechanism down that way i love your perspective because i think it's unique when you hear about breathing advancing or optimizing your performance. There's a lot out there. And you bring something different and I think really um, backed by science to the table. How much further do you think we're going to go into this research? And is there more to find out? With breathing, I mean, I'm finishing a study. I just uh, finished one that looked at what age children change their breathing because we all used to breathe diaphragmatically and then given life, uh, children change their breathing at a certain age. It's actually five and a half. So we just did a study where we looked at children and when it changes. Um, I'm finishing a study now that has over 400 people that will let us know what is the amount of inhale and exhale that your average person gets and how fast does it take for you to teach them or unlock their diaphragm. Because right now if you if you go online and you look at unlocking diaphragm, you have – there's pictures of uh, – therapists with their fingers underneath the rib cage pulling out, which looks really aggressive, although it does work with some people. Um, you have gut smashing, which I don't mind as long as you do it with something that's that's g- a little gentle, like not a 50-pound kettlebell. I've seen people doing really dumb things at the gym. Um, so do you need to get your middle to be more flexible, um, both be able to widen on the inhale and narrow on the exhale? Yes. And do we need to do more studies that show that it's possible to change the breath 
to be diaphragmatic and what the repercussions are, that's going to be really interesting, is what symptom, um, what medical problem, what psychological problem responds best to changing the breath. I can tell you what's happened anecdotally is that I see anxiety come down very quickly. Um, There is a lot of literature on blood pressure coming down and staying down. The digestive disorders, just because the diaphragm acts as a secondary esophagus, so for acid reflux, and back pain. For me, that's what I've seen. But again, I'd like to see it in research with a fairly decent-sized population, and uh, then you know, then I'll talk about it more. <laughs> <laughs> You've been fortunate enough to work with a variety of different people from different industries, special ops soldiers, law enforcement, firefighters, professional athletes, or even just ultra-competitive athletes. <laughs> Is there a particular group you love to work with? Oh, that is tough. Um, I like groups that are skeptical and ask really tough questions because I was that person. I was that person in the back sort of rolling my eyes, needing to know the science, um, asking the annoying harder questions. So whenever I have a group, I encourage that because I know how it feels being that person that's that's seen and listened to a million things and it's felt woo-woo and it's felt like a little guru-ish and I'm not into that. So I like the groups that are going to ask me really specific questions that seem like they're completely, you know, left field. Because they're usually not. And you can see I'll get really excited. I just uh, taught a group in, in Tampa. And I said, you know, ask questions. They can be about anything, like anything health or breathing related or mental health related. Like you have me. You know, please ask me questions. And I love that moment where you open up. Some people hate it. Some people like I need to know exactly who's asking what and I needed to be in this order. I'm the opposite. I'm like I don't want to know. Just open up the floor. Ask me the wackiest questions you possibly can. So um, I like tough audiences. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When you first began this part of your career, did you ever envision that your work would have such an impact on others? You know, I'm a psychologist by trade. So I'm used to the idea that my work has impact. Um... However, I could not imagine that it would have been with breath and that it would have been as worldwide worldwide as it's it's starting to be. So, um, for instance, I I get phone calls and questions from all over the world and make connections with people all over the world. I have a a young man in a wheelchair out of New Zealand that I speak to. I just spoke to um, a cricket instructor – I'm sorry, a cricket coach out of the UK. So I never imagined that happening, that it would be such a varied group of people from all over the world for sure. How have you adapted to the increase in having you personally come and speak and teach? Teacher training is that I, I, I'm actually teaching other people to do this. For me, the idea I don't I don't love traveling. I do it, um, but I'm not that person who you say, "Oh, what would you like to do?" You know, later on I go, "Oh, travel." No, I'm really happy. You know exactly where I am. Uh, 
sitting on a couch or going to the gym. Like that's I'm a creature of habit for sure. So I do not um, I don't love traveling. I do it because the group that I'm going to get to is exciting and interesting. Um, but I'm doing teacher training now. So if somebody says this is really and I this happens quite frequently where I have someone say this is really resonating with me. I saw your TED talk. I saw your book. I want to be able to teach this where I am in like the other day in Manila. Awesome. I don't need to go to Manila. Like if you want to learn and teach, great. Mm-hmm. And I've had people – I have a child specialist in the UK who works specifically with children. Um, there are people who have decided, oh, I'm going to do this specifically for moms. I'm going to do this specifically for trauma and they bring it into what they're working with. So teacher training for me is, is the next step. Fortunately, uh, people who've attended Leadership Under Fire events have gotten to hear directly from you. Um, what stands out to you about the Leadership Under Fire team and the work oh, that they're doing? You guys are, are just – I talk about you all the time. Leadership Under Fire is is so sophisticated and cutting edge as far as thinking about how do we make leaders? How do we support leaders? How do we get information to leaders to keep them feeling relevant and and nourished really because the burnout is so high and because uh, leaders are a group of people that need information, need a lot of information and have a particular hunger for doing better, being better and making an impact in the world. So leadership under fire is, is tremendous. I've always – it's always been such an honor to be able to come and to speak to the group for sure. It's an honor to listen to you. (laughs) Today we touched on some basics, intermediate and I'd say advanced level stuff. Is there anything you want to touch on that we might have missed? You are an awesome um, interviewer. No, I mean, uh, thank you. No, it's it's nice to be able to ask, get asked those harder questions about where things are going, and a little bit about me personally. Um, So I wouldn't add anything other than if you think you're breathing in a way that's. Uh, not optimal, you're probably right. And the great uh, the great thing about that is that you can actually fix it and feel much better um, on your own, you know, uh, looking at what, what I do as well. But it's a completely untapped place so far. And there's going to be some great information from me, from a whole host of other people that teach breathing. And it's a field that is really exciting. So for our listeners, if you want to find out more about Dr. Belisa, you can go to her website, and also you can uh, pick up her book, Breathe. And she has tons of resources online as well, a TEDx talk that is worthwhile to go and listen to, to revisit the basics, the fundamentals, and really build from there, get a full fledged experience uh, (laughs) in terms of, and, and if you have the opportunity to, please attend the breathing class. You won't be sorry. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Conway Shield is one of the few companies led by a president who has saved a life at the threat of his own. Paul Conway serves with a relentless firefighter mentality like his brother and father before him. Founded in 1985, Conway Shield manufactures America's finest helmet shields while arming firefighters and law enforcers with products Paul Conway himself would trust in the line of fire. 
Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast listeners can receive a 10% discount site-wide using the code LUF more at ConwayShield.com. Hey listeners, we hope you're enjoying the podcast. The Leadership Under Fire team is excited to share that the 2019 National Optimizing Human Performance Summit will take place in Annapolis, Maryland, March 29th through 30th. This event, aimed at building your anchor, will explore resilience at the individual, team, and organizational levels, as well as from the tactical, mental, and moral perspectives. Summit speakers and panelists include Jen Baker, Senior Associate Athletics Director at John Hopkins University, Brendan Cauley of the FDNY, Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek, the authors of the New York Times bestseller Indianapolis, former U.S. Navy SEAL and functional fitness trainer Stu Smith, and more. Participants will collaborate in small groups with LUF advisors, plus have a chance to participate in a functional fitness workout. Registration is limited, so act fast. For more information, visit our website or email contact at leadershipunderfire.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.